Look at your neighbor and say, God is doing something in me. Amen. So like we said, we're traveling with some people from our church, uh, pastors in training. They're doing a phenomenal job. And I'm just amazed at their speed. speed. And um, sometimes I wish I was them learning what they're learning now. Um, and they're not going to be susceptible to some of the mistakes I've made. I always make a joke that in my McKinsey consultancy days, when I was a McKinsey consultant and not a preacher, sharing motivation, or in my stand-up comedy days when I used to share stand-up on Sunday. But it's always a blessing to start where you are. My bishop always used to say that um, it takes you about five years. Your first five years of preaching, you sound exactly like your spiritual father. Then your second five years, you sound exactly like your biggest influences. And then it's only after 10 years going into your next five, where you start to, start to find your voice and you start to find your message. I was at a conference with uh, Pastor Ejay's church and there was a pastor from Cameroon. He, he blessed me with some a statement he said prophetically. He says, I follow your bishop like crazy and i follow all of his spiritual sons as well and i've noticed that you out of all the sons all of them attempt to do what your bishop does and he said they fail miserably and then he says but you're the first one who i've found you've got your own message and your own style i hear you be here and that's the power of um, expository preaching. It's not dependent on style. Anybody can be taught and learn how to do it. And once you've got the skills and the Holy Spirit helps you, you are gone. So I'm going to give you uh, practical tips of how to improve as um, an expositor. So if we could have the first slide. Um, Two people who always suffer on a Sunday when a preacher is preaching are the sound man and the, cam and the media man. That's during service. Then after service, the next people who suffer are video and sound again. Um, and so it, it's always a challenge just saying, okay, put up my mic or put the slides up. So right, we're going to session two, perfect. So the first practical tip I call it mind the gap. So, pastor, whenever you open your Bible to study and then to preach, you are dealing with two audiences and two writers. So there's the ancient writer and the ancient audience. So for this practical lesson, if you brought your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 2. So when you turn to uh, Psalm chapter 2, you are turning to what is believed. Now, Psalm chapter 2 does not have a superscription, uh, but many people believe that it's a psalm of David. Some people believe that it's a psalm of the editors because Psalm chapter 1 and Psalm chapter 2 are technically just introductions to the book of Psalms. 
the book of Psalms actually begins in chapter 3. So when you're preaching Psalms, you actually start at chapter 3. Chapter 1 and 2 are just introductions. And uh, chapter 1 is a Torah psalm. And to a certain extent, it's also a wisdom psalm. And then chapter 2, again, it's a, it's a mixture of an enthronement psalm or a royal psalm. And at the same time, it's also messianic. So, and this is a good example, because to the ancient writer, they were writing a royal psalm, talking about the enthronement of uh, an, a king of Israel. So when the ancient audience were reading Psalm chapter 2, it's a psalm celebrating how a king of Israel is put into position and then how international and global enemies uh, begin to rage. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel. So in the ancient audience, when they are hearing this, they're thinking about the neighboring nations, Egypt, why are they raging, Syria, because whenever a new king is being installed, that is the time a nation is at its most vulnerable. That's when people come in, whenever leadership is changing in a nation. So the rulers, they take counsel against the Lord, against his anointed. So the anointed was always considered the king of Israel. Um, so in the ancient audience, when they see the anointed, they're not thinking in terms of the modern church. Don't touch the anointed. Don't touch the man of God. They are thinking of the king when they read that. Saying, let us break their bonds in pieces, cast away their cords from us. So when they're hearing that, it's talking about the nations rebelling against the dominion of Israel. Because some of those nations are paying tax. So when a new king is coming up, they're saying, why should we pay these taxes? Let us break out of ICC. Why are we part of ICC? So in that audience, they're asking themselves, why are we submitting? Solomon is gone. There's this new king coming around who's raising tax. Why should we keep paying tribute to him? Solomon is gone. We shouldn't. And then in verse 4, it says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. So he's encouraging the new king that the Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So this is the heavenly endorsement of the ancient king. So as the ancient writer is writing this, during a coronation of a king, they are interpreting it as the king of Israel is the king God has chosen and the foreign nations must submit to him. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. So even in the ancient kingdom, they believed that when you became a king, you became a son of God. Today I have begotten you. So on that coronation, you're being begotten. You ask of me and I'll give thee the nations of your inheritance. So he's saying that just ask me. All these nations that are rebelling, I'll give them to you. And the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. So again, in the context of the ancient audience, it's the king saying, submit to my authority, or else I'll be angry, and you'll perish in the way when his wrath is kindled by the little. Blessed are those 
who put their trust in him. So in the ancient audience, you've got a bit of the history, a bit of a cultural um, background of what he is writing and what they are hearing. But in the contemporary audience, this royal psalm actually becomes a messianic psalm. It's talking about Jesus. Why are the heathens raging against the Lord? Why are nations passing laws and regulations that Bibles mustn't be in school and, you know, we must teach children demonic doctrines and ideology? Why are they so upset um, with, with Christ and against his anointed, saying, let us break his bonds in pieces, whatever laws he has put in place. What he says is right and wrong. Don't give me your religion. We don't need to obey what the Lord says. It's the rebellion against the Messiah, Messianic rebellion, Antichrist. So in a new audience, you'll actually see that this royal psalm is actually a Messianic psalm. And then you begin to apply it. So you have to mind the gap that 2,000 years ago, Psalm 2 was an enthronement psalm. But in the New Testament, it is a Messianic psalm. So whenever you're reading enthronement psalms in the book of Psalms, there's a messianic um, application that is always available to you. So you've got to mind that gap. And then the other gap you need to watch out for is the spiritual gap. There's a spiritual gap between something God was dealing with in the spirit in the text you're reading, in the original audience, and then there can be something else he wants to deal with in the spirit in us today. So he could have been dealing with something there um, in terms of the, the nations rebelling. And spiritually, let's say for example, at the time when Solomon died and his son Rehoboam was coming up, spiritually something wrong happened when Solomon started to worship idols. And then the kingdom was divided into two, with the south and the northern kingdom. And this text could be dealing with something spiritually in that time, which is different from the time we are in. So here we are in South Africa, in a time where um, it's after 1994, we've come out of apartheid. Uh, now our, the struggle we had was against apartheid. Now the struggle we have is against corrupt and incompetent leadership. We're in a different struggle. And spiritually, it has different spiritual implications based on where we are. So how does this text now deal with something in the spirit, sometimes individually in us? Someone can be anxious now, you know, load shedding, uh, the anxious crime, the constantly anxious. But God is trying to tell you that he that sits in the heavens laughs. That he doesn't panic when there's issues happening um, on a global scale, whether it's Ukraine conflict, whether it's Sudan, whether it's whatever, nationally. He that sits in the heavens laughs. He doesn't panic. He doesn't panic. So spiritually, he could be dealing with someone's anxiety by letting them know that the sovereignty of God is greater than anything human government can cook out. He is sovereign. He is in control. So you have no reason to be anxious. You have every reason to trust God. So you could be dealing with something on a family level or 
on a church level, on a city-wide level, on a national-wide level. There's a spiritual gap which you also have to sense as you are reading uh, the text. And then you have to bridge. Preachers are bridges. We, we bridge the gap between the ancient and the contemporary. We are bridges. So we have to look at what is similar and what is different. What is similar? What is different? You know, what is similar? When we think about his anointed, what is similar? So the anointed in the text is the king of Israel. What is similar in a contemporary environment? Can we say that the president of the country is the Lord's anointed? Can we say that? Biblically, with the stuff that they do. But we can't say that the office of leadership from the book of Romans, we're told to honor and pray for those in authority because there is a level of God in maintaining order amongst sinners in a sinful fallen world. So we can't say, don't criticize the president because don't touch the Lord's anointed. He's not the Lord's anointed, but the office itself of human government is anointed by God to help us. So we can disagree with the person, but we'll always honor the office. Are you hearing me here? Then, so you, you start to look at the similarities between then and now, you know, what is going on. Um, when he's talking about, let us break their bands in pieces. What are, what are nations in the world doing today to rebel against the word of God? What is the world doing today? Obviously, top on the list right now is uh, gender theory, which is being pushed heavily by governments and entertainment going against the design of God. God is very clear. He is very clear. There is no confusion. It's very clear in terms of man is man, woman is woman. There is no confusion. There is no negotiation. Why is it that way? He is God and we are man. Our first level of submission is to submit to what He created us to be. He didn't make me a white person. He didn't make me an Indian. He didn't make me uh, a woman. He didn't make me born in the 60s. You, imagine now you're going to start saying, I'm trans age. I'm actually 12. Yeah. I sense I was actually born in the 60s. Yeah. It's going to keep getting, re it's going to get ridiculous like that. Yeah. Then there's going to be a trans animal. Yeah. I'm actually a lion. There's a, the priest said there's a lion in me. And I agree. Go there to the lion park and show us. Yeah. Go there and walk around. Let's see. The lions will show you yeah. that the devil has entered your brains. So what, what areas is the world rebelling against God today? So you start looking at similarities and differences and how best uh, you can apply. What's similar? What's different? Um... And then this one is important now. When you get into sermon preparation, your starting point matters. When you open the Bible, don't start here in the modern world. Start in the ancient world. Always start in the ancient, then work your way here. So the mistake we are making is we are starting in the, in the current world. So... Um, 
I want to do a message that is relevant to the now. We've got this hip hop culture, so I'm going to turn this into hip hop culture. I'm going to take hip hop culture here and then turn this into hip hop. I'm going to take I'm a piano and turn this into I'm a piano. I'm going to take um, what's what's an interesting story recently? Oh, Tabo Besta. And I'm going to turn this into Tabo Besta. I'm going to turn this into about getting out of jail. You know, so we take the issues happening here and we start to turn them here. Always start here and then go there. Here must always submit to here. Are you hearing me here? Your starting point. You start in the ancient world, then you start working your way through time. And we always like to start in the modern. And then we go to the ancient and force the ancient to submit to the needs, the desires, the rebellion of the contemporary. You've got people in the modern world trying to force what the Bible didn't say. Trying to force what the Bible, because we are so rebellious in our hearts. What was the temptation of Eve? The temptation Eve faced, which Lucifer gave, his same temptation, he gave it to them. You shall be like God. The temptation to be your own God is the temptation of mankind every day. The temptation to be our own gods is one we love. Where we don't need God. We always want to be God. We want to be hope. We want to be God. We want to be all these things. We don't understand that we are meant to submit to God. We are not little gods. We are in no, there's no scale. The scale of the creator and the creature. God is powerful people. We are in no scale close to him. The power of God is insanely beyond our capacity. He just shares his attributes with us. We don't inherently own those, uh, there's the incommunicable perfections, the incommunicable attributes of God, which he just allows us to share. You know that God is so big that when we die and go to heaven, we're still just going to see a glimpse. Because if he shows us the full magnitude of who he is, we will die. It is literally important. There is no being with the, with the, with the hard drive to, to process that information and live. He says, show me your glory and you'll die. I can't. <laughs> I can only show you just a little bit. And that little bit will make your face shine for days. Just a small droplet of who I am. He is so big. And we are so small. But somehow we're always tempted to believe you are your own God. And that's where we always, we always have to be careful even how we manage um, affirmations, um, confessions and energy and all this stuff. It must never replace prayer. Are you hearing me here? Whatever faith confession you make, it must be through God and through Christ. 
It must never be you individually saying, I am creating this with my words. It must be through God all the time. You must now become your own God. Where you've got the secret and the law of attraction. You need the law of prayer. Where you make your requests known to God. If you study, I've done a study on every prayer in the Bible. When I listen to our prayers on microphones and the prayers in the Bible, it's night and day. The way they prayed was always to approach God with great humility. Tomorrow I'm preaching on Psalm 6 for those who will be in church tomorrow. There's something new I learned about prayer this week. Pray, David always entered prayer like a useless beggar. He never approached God, God, I've come to take over. This city is mine, it's mine, it's mine. I've come to take everything from Bethlehem. David will always enter like a useless beggar. We enter like creditors demanding God who owes us. He enters like a debtor who has already... He enters like a debtor who... Imagine you borrowed money from F&B, one million, and you were promising to buy a house, and you took that money and went to Monte Casino and blew it, and they had cameras, and they're showing you, ah, sir, you never bought the house. Yeah, I was robbed. No, 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 we've got the video of you uh, at Monte Casino with Tambo Besta and Dr. Nandi. We can see you there. But I actually died. I, I faked my death. Like, no, no, no. And then David, even when he's caught guilty, he's not ashamed to ask for another loan. Are you hearing me here? Even when he's guilty, He'll still come in and say, yes, I know, I stole the money, I, I blew it there, but because of your goodness and your mercy, give me another loan. And I'm not promising to even buy the house. I might blow it again. That's how they would pray. It's always with a spirit of humility. We pray with a spirit of, it is mine. And God owes me. And um, so our starting point must always be um, the ancient world. Are you hearing me? And then it's when it's for applications, your starting point is the modern world. Now, this is, this is a very important aspect, applications. Sometimes you have to be able to not only exegete the passage, but you have to exegete the congregation. You've got to be able to do a hermeneutics of the congregation and interpret the congregation. You know that scripture, as a man thinketh in his heart so easy. It's not about positive thinking. It's actually a scripture about um, how to manage yourself in the presence of rulers. The proverb is a poem of when you sit before a ruler, be mindful of what is said before thee. That's how it opens. The father is talking to his son. To say, when you enter the room of a ruler, let's say you're going to sit with um, um, who's a ruler who's sneaky. Let's just say you're going to sit with uh, the the foreign ambassador of America, Blinken. 
you know, they've come to give you money for climate change and all of that. It says, be very careful when you sit to eat with them. What the, the proposals they've put in front of you. And put a knife to your throat if you're a man given to appetite. Eat, eat, he says, but his heart is not with you. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So it's about the hypocrisy in the nature of man. They can put something with their words and physically, but their heart is not with you. But as they think in their heart, so is he. So it's a scripture about reading people and discerning their hearts, even though they might present something publicly. It's not about, public, it's not about positive thinking. It's about reading people. That's what the scripture is about. Are you hearing me here? And our whole life we've used it as a positive thinking nugget. As I think in my heart, so am I. I think, and why is the first thinking I'm rich? Why is, the, why is never the first thinking I am holy, I'm kind, I'm generous? Why is it the first thinking? As we think in our hearts, so are we for real. But the truth is, it's about being able to read the hearts of of rulers and when you're dealing with applications you have to read the hearts of men what are people struggling with what are people's biggest fears and that's where your applications are going to come from being able to to discern what are people struggling with and then when you're preaching they'll come and say you were talking to me how did you know you were talking to them you exegeted the audience it's not just good enough to have biblical exegesis. You've got to have people exegesis. And people exegesis is so powerful that you've got preachers who are so good at reading people that the whole message is just applications without the word. And it sounds powerful because they're able to tap into the pain and needs of people. But the challenge is they're not providing the medicine to the need. They're just touching the need but they're not providing the medicine, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you've got to be able to read people. Are you hearing me here? Read people. And then, this one is so important. Again, it's like the five script principle. When you open a scripture like Psalm 2, you've got to allow that scripture to also, as you're laying hold of it, You've got to allow God to hold you captive in that word. When he arrests you in that scripture all week. It's not just a matter of, okay, it's time to prepare the sermon on Saturday. If you're writing sermons on Saturday, it's too late. You cannot write an expository service on Saturday. If you're, I knew a pastor used to write in the car park on Sunday. Are you hearing me here? I'm almost done, I'm almost done. Glory, I'm almost done. Are you hearing me here? If you're writing on a Saturday, you're not serious. You start working on Sunday's message on Sunday after preaching Sunday's message. I'm going to look for a man somewhere. <laughs> that same Sunday, you're already doing the groundwork for what's coming. Monday, you're working. Tuesday, you're... it's an everyday thing. 
Saturday is just spice and reciting. You cannot be writing sermons on a Saturday. I feel conviction in the room. I feel a prophetic application. May the spirit trouble you with that statement. May you repent after this. But here's the beauty of the gospel. It's never to shame you. It's always to invite you to the next level. So if that was you, it's not to shame you in any way. It's to invite you to the more excellent way. I hear it here. So don't allow any guilt or any feelings of shame. There's room for repentance. And you can start tomorrow. After you preach, you start working on what's coming. So it's very important. So you have to allow the word to arrest you where it is with you and on you all the time. Yeah. I print whatever scripture I'm going to preach, I print it and I carry it with me to be there with me in the car, wherever I'm going. I arrive anywhere, I'm open, I print it out, I read that paper, I take a note. If I get somewhere and there's a queue at the back, I go, more time. And I start to use that time just to, just to meditate and to think about it. As I'm driving, I'm thinking about it. Sometimes I just switch off the radio. And just start to think about those verses. When my wife is talking, I just think about those verses. Which is, which is, <laughs> you forgot to buy the water. I asked that. That's fantastic opportunity. <laughs> Are you hearing me here? His word is your refuge in a time of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> when your soccer team is losing in the first half at the Etihad and it's 3-0 at halftime, just get back into the word and say, this is a sign, Lord. The league is gone. This is a sign to get back into the word. The best preachers should be from Liverpool right now. They're playing for nothing. They've got no pressure. There's no stress. They can just enjoy life and enjoy football and study the Bible. There's no pressure. You've got to allow the Word of God to grip a hold of you. And you have to open yourself to be held captive. And then you have to ask yourself before you preach, is this for me, Lord? Is this what I am doing? Is this... And I'm the, am I the one who's breaking the bonds in pieces and casting them away? What areas of my life, Father, am I going against your design? Because you're not perfect as a preacher. There's areas that that same word you're preaching is also dealing with you. It's impossible that you're preaching for someone else. Every Sunday, there's an element in there to help you too. To sanctify you too. So you've got to, you've got to come to that place and say, Father, this is, this is scary. Let us break their bonds in pieces, cast away their cords. What areas of my ministry, Father, are we breaking your bonds and doing things our way? What areas of my marriage? What areas of my parenting? What areas of my thinking? So the word has to arrest you as well. It has to take you captive and bring you to obedience to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It has to arrest you. It has to arrest you. And then there's areas where it's going to also encourage you. 
Because there's areas where the Lord is going to be, he that sits in the heaven laughs. So when you're thinking about all your anxiety in ministry or whatever, God just says, don't worry, I'm laughing at these problems because I'm about to bless you. I'm about to come through for you. And there's areas of great encouragement which also begin to come. There's areas of great faith just begins to stir up your faith. And then the most exciting time when you're under arrest and you're in prison, when the world arrests you, when you look up, you start to see that right next to you in prison is Jesus. But there's another in the fire standing right next to you. And he's there to help you. So in the areas where you're weak, he's bringing strength. In the areas where you're falling short, he is the perfect substitute. And you begin to experience Jesus in the word. And it has held you captive. So by the time you come to preach, you're a prisoner of the gospel. Sharing your time in the prison of Psalm chapter 2. I was arrested in this prison all week. Let me tell you some details in this jail cell. Why do the heathen rage? It was a part of the prison. And then there were these kings of the earth setting themselves. And they said, let us break their bonds in pieces. So, so now you're speaking as someone who spent some time in prison all week. And you're telling people details of this dungeon. Every scripture is a new dungeon. Every scripture, there's different furniture. The chains are different. The whips are different. There's different aspects everywhere. And after you've spent time in there, you're going to share the best word possible. Again, I have to warn you, this takes time. If you don't have time, you've got to make time. You've got to tell some people goodbye. You've got to tell some TV shows goodbye. You, you don't need to watch Carabao Cup. Just focus on Champions League. You don't need to watch International Friendly. Lithuania versus Madagascar. What are you doing? You don't need to do that. This thing takes time. But you, you've got to be under the grip of the Word of God. And then once it grips you, you start finding yourself under the grip of the will of God. And it begins to even affect how you deal with your wife, how you deal with your children, how you process the pain that you're going through. Changes it. How you process opportunity, how you process success, how you process um, contentment. A lot of pastors struggle with contentment. The manna has 30,000 members. It still wants more. There is more. There is. At some point, be content. And say, this is enough. We don't need another 100 campuses where they're watching a video of me. Are you hearing me here? There's a point of contentment as well. Because what is this gospel? This gospel is powerful. It's not about the, our joy is not in the external things. Our joy is in the internal work that he's doing in us every day. So our joy is not controlled by things like church attendance, church building, the quality of the band, 
all those are externals. There's something internal that the Lord has been doing in my life for years. And my joy is derived from that. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. So there's seasons of unfruitfulness and seasons of fruit. But the constant is the rivers of waters where the tree is connected and drawing life. I'm not drawing life from the fruit. I'm not drawing life from the external. I'm drawing life from the internal relationship that I have with Jesus Christ. And the more I experience his presence and I am gripped under the word that he's giving, it puts me to a place where I'm now gripped by his will. And my joy is to do his will. My joy is to do what he has called me to do. And then after you've been held captive, the next thing you need to do, and this is an important tip, learn to write your sermon fully. This is a very simple tip. Write a full manuscript. Write word for word for word. It's hard. <laughs> it's easy just to have points in your brain. Okay, I'm going to just talk about power, grace, healing, joy. We're done. Write everything word for word. Write everything word for word. On average at university, most of our assignments that they ask for us, they're about 2,500 to 4,000 words. Every week I write 5,000 to 6,000 words. Say it's a lot of words. My daughter right now is working on her book. She's on 700 words right now. She's been writing for three months. Um, and the other day, in 30 minutes, I was on 2,000 words. We were, like, we were writing next to each other, and she saw my word count. She said, Dad, I'm only on 700 words in three months. You're on 2,000 in less than an hour. Like my dear expository preaching. It's hard. Are you hearing me here? Write your manuscript fully. Write a format. And then that becomes your first draft. Then after that, you need to edit it. So in your editing, that's another important thing. A lot of preachers do not edit. What they write as the first draft is what they bring on Sunday. You've got to edit. In editing, you're also going to see things like arrangement. Sometimes I can decide, okay, I'm starting with this, but let me put that at the end. And what I was putting at the end, I'm going to put at the beginning. It's going to help you with arrangement. It's going to help you also release um, the excess fat. Um, it's going to help you also refine what you want to say. Um, and then in the pulpit, it's up to you. If you want to bring your full manuscript, if you want to bring in points by points, or if you want to bring in, or if you want to memorize, it's all up to you. There's no prize for memorizing. There's no prize for memorizing. The tough part of memorizing is whether you like it or not, you're going to forget some key things. And after suffering the whole week, I must go home after I forgot. <laughs> Now I've got after preaching depression. Are you hearing me here? So make sure you bring as many points as possible. You don't want to forget, but it all depends on your style, your gift, your time. 
There's some people who've got great memories, they can memorize everything. Uh, there's some people who can just put the main points, there's some people who can put a uh, full manuscript. It's all up to you. There's no, there's no hard, uh, it just depends on your capabilities. Um, and then number eight, it's very important that um, when you're preaching, aim to get into the text quickly. Attack the text early. So from the start, from your background, you're attacking the text. You've read Psalm chapter 2. Your introduction, you're, you're indirectly attacking the text. And, but you want to get very quickly to... So in verse 1 it says, why do the nations rage? You want to get quickly there. So what happens is sometimes uh, with expositors, sometimes you can end up marching around the text for 40 minutes and then in five minutes you find yourself with um, 12 verses in Psalm chapter 2. Then you say, why do the nations raise and the people were parliamenting and they probably think, let's stand, let's go. But you spend too much time walking around the walls of Jericho that they're now waiting inside. Hey, the walls haven't fallen. Eh? <laughs> These people. <laughs> They were just marching around with jokes, talking stories, caught up in Greek, Hebrew, everything else, and they never ever got to Psalm chapter 2. So, you've got to move quickly and get into the text and attack it. Now, just on that note again, the goal is you're trying to also be a sniper, not a machine gunner. Yeah. You don't want to be firing so many things. You want to be a sniper. So if I'm looking at this text, <laughs> if I'm looking at this text, it's talking about global rebellion. That's the main idea. So the issue I'm here to deal with is the rebellion of nations. So everything is going to be building into this. They're rebelling. And then if I'm taking it from a Christological perspective, I'm talking about um, just the Antichrist sentiment in the hearts of men. So that's the main story, just hitting it, hitting it. That there's an Antichrist spirit. People just rebel against God. People don't want to submit to God. People uh, in the world, through their sin, they want to continue um, in their life of, uh, of sin and... They're rebelling against the Lord. So you focus. You always want to bring your sermon into focus. You don't want to talk about a hundred disconnected things. There has to be the main thrust. This is where we are going. And you're constantly coming to that. Are you hearing me here? Look at your neighbor and say, attack the verse. So now, um, as a practical skill, I want to just give you for free. Um, this one, I think, would cost about eighteen thousand per session. <laughs> um, how to preach from the Book of Psalms? I just want to give you guys just for for free an opportunity, something practical. If you got your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter two. Right. If you got your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter two. I was given the New King James Version, which is fantastic for the Psalms. So it says, so when you open a psalm like Psalm chapter 2, 
The first thing you must know that you're looking at is you're looking at poetry. This is poetry. This is not narrative. It's not an epistle. It's not a letter. Uh, epistles are very high. The letters were very high on doctrine and uh, practical application, like Pauline epistles. Like I'm enjoying Romans right now. But yeah, the first chapter just, yeah, it's beautiful. I'm stuck. I'm under arrest. I'm in prison. I'm in a Roman prison right now. And just that first chapter has messed up my life. He opens by saying, the gospel of God. I was like, what's this gospel of God? And it's beautiful. And there's this part where he says, and he's going to give them, he, and he gave them to their own desires and their own lust. And making themselves wise, they actually became fools. He's taking the gospel to this global level, and it's even futuristic, talking about right now. But there's a lot of doctrine in there. But in the Psalms, it's poetry. The Psalms are not heavy on doctrine. They're heavy on emotion. They're heavy on emotion. Um, and they have a lot of images, a lot of symbolic images. So they must be approached differently from the narratives and the epistles. Most modern day preachers are narrative driven preachers. They like telling the Bible stories all the time, story, 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 story. Um, so when they come to the Psalms, because there's no stories, they struggle. Yeah. So they won't deal with the Psalms. They'll deal with the famous Psalm, Psalm 23, Psalm 91. Which other Psalm is popular? In the motivational church, which one? Psalm 121, which one is done on about? Oh. Beautiful. I lift up my eyes to the hills, so much come at my help. My help cometh from the Lord. Oh my God. The Lord is my keeper. Upon thy right hand. Right? Sarah. I will lift up my eyes. My help comes from the Lord. Okay. You will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Essentially, this specific psalm, it's, one of, it's what is known as the Psalms of Ascent. They used to sing them as they're going to the temple, as they're going to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem journey. So it's a song which they're singing in that context. So you've got to understand that it's a poem. It's not a story. Um, so they approach differently from narratives. Narratives are exciting because you're dealing with characters and individuals. They're fun. Epistles are very intellectual and doctrine, and, but the poems are not that way. Number two, know that they use images to interpret the meaning. To interpret, so you have to be able to interpret images to understand what they mean. What is this image? Let us break their bonds in pieces. That's an image. And cast away their cords from us. That's an, that's, an, that's an image that means something symbolically. It means rebelling against authority. Uh, number three, know that they have multiple genres. So the Psalms themselves are not one genre. Within the Psalms, there's multiple genres within the Psalms. There's Psalms of praise. So 
the songs of ascent are, are psalms of praise. They're praising God. So Psalm 121 and Psalm 2 are not the same. They are psalms, but they have different genres. Um, just giving you a quick overview, Psalm 1 is a Torah psalm, or it's a wisdom psalm. The dominant issue there is the doctrine of two paths. Psalm 2 is a, an enthronement psalm, but it's also a messianic psalm. Psalm 3 is a psalm of lament. Uh, Psalm 4, lament. Psalm 5, lament. Psalm 6, lament. Psalm 7. So a lot of these psalms are already laments. When you go to Psalm 23, it's not a lament psalm. It's a psalm of trust. Where he's talking about trusting God. But before you get there, there's a messianic psalm, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we can trust God because of what happened on the cross. We can trust the good shepherd. The shepherd dies in 22 and we can trust him to lead us through the valley of the shadow of sin and death. Death is now casting a shadow. We walk past the valley of the shadow of death and we go to the table he has prepared for us in the final consummation when he comes for the second time. So it's the journey that we're making. He moves from a shepherd who leads us. In life, he leads us as a shepherd. In death, he is a host, hosting us at his table. So you've got to understand the different images. Those are just images. So some two, some 23, there's two images, the shepherd and the host, two different images. So there's so many images that you have to study, and then you have to study the genres as well. Number four, know the voices in the sound. How many people are talking? Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? That's the narrator, the kings of the earth. And then he, verse three is when we hear what the kings are saying. So the voice has changed. Verse 1 to 2 is a narrator speaking. Verse 3, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords. And then verse 4, the narrator speaks. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and in his distress. And then verse 6, the Lord speaks. Yet I have set my king on the holy hill of Zion. So you've got to pick out that in the Psalms there's different voices. And you've got to be able to identify each voice. And then I will declare the decree. That's another voice. The Lord said to me, this is the king speaking now. So the whole psalm is not one person speaking. You've got to be paying attention to who's saying what. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations. So now the king is speaking. The nations and the ends of the earth. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Now when we get to verse 10, who's speaking? The king or the narrator? It's the narrator. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish. So in this psalm, there's been a narrator. There have been ungodly kings. Narrator, God, and the king. There's already four different speakers in one psalm. And you've got to be able to identify them when you're dealing with the Psalms as you're going through them. And then number five, 
This one is also very important. You've got to understand how parallelism works. Semantic parallelism, thought rhyme. In the Bible, particularly in the poets, they use semantic parallelism. And um, they also use chiism, chiastic patterns. Those need another seminar for another day. And then number six, look for a superscription. Sometimes in the Psalms, they give you a superscription. Psalm chapter 3 is the first superscription. If you've got a good Bible, uh, at the top it should say a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Who has a good Bible in the house? Whose Bible doesn't have that written? Ashas, take those Bibles. Those are Jehovah's Witness translations. <laughs> So, a good Bible should have the superscription. And um, Bullock, Bullock, Montgomery Boyce, and uh, they all argue for the canonicity of superscriptions. In other words, they argue that the superscriptions must be taken as seriously as the verses themselves. Because the superscription gives you a historical context. So, anytime you see a superscription, it's there to help you understand the context of what you're about to read. So Psalm 3 is written at a time when David was on the run from Absalom, um, which is in 2 Kings, 2 Samuel 15. So you're able to go to 2 Samuel 15, understand the context, and then when you read, Lord, how have they increased who trouble me? Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. So when he's saying that, he's talking about Absalom who is trying to kill him. So you now understand that this is not just general. It's specifically dealing with a king who is about to be killed by enemies. Then the question becomes, how do I now apply a political coup d'etat to the life of an individual? And what you do then is you understand in Psalms, the, you're trying to capture the emotion. Psalms are more about capturing the emotion of the individual in prayer. Watch me very carefully here. Every one of us in every season of our lives, and this is particularly for pastors, we're going to be dealing with uh, pain and success. There's ministry pain and there's ministry success. And both, both of those things have their own tests. Nothing reveals your heart as a pastor as ministry pain or ministry success. The test of ministry success is to feel, oh, it's me. I've done all of this. I've built all these campuses. All these 10,000 people are all coming to hear me. They've come for me. It's because of me. I suffered to do this. This is me. That's the test. And there's two things which can destroy your ministry. Ministry success and ministry pain. If you don't process them through the gospel. Because when you start to think, because it's a temptation. You see how we treat rich people. We think that they know everything. Elon Musk only knows about uh, Tesla, Rock. But you see, he always wants to act like he knows everything about everything. Because he's successful in his field. But he's not humble enough to say, I don't understand everything. I just know how to do a good business. 
that can make cars and hey, that's that that's the grace God has given me. But he believes because I'm rich, I know everything. Another president, former president, because he was rich, unbelievable. <laughs> We're gonna build the best economy because he's good at one area of life. He believes in everything, he's good. And that's the, the test of ministry success. That when God blesses your ministry, you can start to think it's you. And you forget that you're just a sinner who's as bad as the pastor with a small church, who needs Jesus as much as the pastor with a small church, who's going to face the Lord the same way as that pastor. And then you also have to process ministry paid correctly as well. And understand that anytime God allows pain in your life, it's always through the power of a father building you up for something better. Pain is never punishment. It's never punishment. It's always for refining. Ministry praying is not God punishing you. It's not because there's some ancestors who did some stuff or some sins you committed in preschool. You stole someone's crayons and now the Lord is still mad at you. It's always to refine you. When ministry pain is there to refine your heart and to increase your dependency and your love for God. Are you hearing me here? You've got to be able to process them. You've got to be able to process those difficulties and those challenges that we go through. So after you look at um, the superscription, you've got to know um, which genre, after you know which genre, you have to try your best to aim to preach the whole psalm, not a, few, a verse in isolation. Many times people like to take one verse. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my haters. Are you hearing me here? Can we break this theology of hater theology? Everything is about enemies, haters. In Africa, we even figured out how to return curses back. We would declare, let them die. Let There's prayers we now call judgment nights. We were judging our enemies all night. We are gathering all night to judge your enemies on behalf of God. The grace of God will embarrass you and disappoint you because Cain who killed Abel was forgiven somehow. God put a mark on him and said no one can touch him. He prospered, built cities. Well, Abel is dead. Are you hearing me here? God has this thing of forgiving people. It's not our place to judge. Let God judge, not us. Are you hearing me here? Now we're returning to senders. And we're all about haters. Like my African-American brothers, every message, you're haters. And it's always creating this culture of everyone is jealous of you. Everyone, you know, no one is loyal. Everyone is a traitor. Everybody has sinned. People will let you down. People will let you down. It's part of the journey of life in a fallen world. But we don't now create and make Christians enemies of everybody in life. That's not our place. So then, um, so try and not preach just a one verse. 
try and preach the whole psalm so that you get the whole context of the psalm. Avoid preaching one verse from the psalm. Preach the whole psalm. If you're doing Psalm 23, preach the whole psalm. You can't just start at he shall prepare a table. You've got to start from the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The good shepherd leading you through the valley of the shadow of death. What does that mean? And then you have to find Jesus in all of that now. That it is him who's leading you through the hard times, through those valleys. And then when he brings you to a table, he's prepared. And the good thing is prepared for you. He now, the reason why he says he prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies, it's not saying, you know our favorite new doctrine, God is keeping your enemies alive so they can see you in Maldives. Make sure you post so those people who didn't believe in us, God did, you didn't believe in us. So it's not about that. The issue is about covenant. And when we sit on a table with him in, in the Middle Eastern culture, now you go back to the ancient audience. First of all, who you sit with reveals who you are. You don't sit with, on the seat of the scornful. You're sitting with the, he brings you to his table. He's, re, he's honoring you. Number two, if I am hosting you, your enemies become my enemies. I cannot allow them to attack you while I am hosting you. It's like if Putin visits, if anything happens to him here, the whole Russia has to come against us. We have to protect him because he's eating with us. Are you hearing me here? So when you are seated there, you're sitting in grace and the love of God and all the enemies that are against you, the biggest being sin, the biggest being death, cannot touch you because you are under his protection in his covenant. Are you hearing me here? So you now just have to rest and enjoy his presence. So he gets you through all that valley to bring you to a place of fellowship and communion. So the whole object there is not even your enemies. Your object is your host showing you how much he loves you and how much he cares for you. So don't even, it's actually a, a, a sermon saying don't pay attention to your enemies. I've dealt with them on the cross. I've dealt with all the generational curses. I've dealt with all the demons. I've dealt with all this stuff. You don't have to spend all night talking to the devil at an all night prayer. All night talking to demons. Creating them even. You don't have to spend all night. Just when you enter in my presence, just eat. Eat. Don't fight. Eat. We don't do warfare on the table because the enemy is already defeated. We do fellowship and intimacy with the Lord when we gather at his table. Are you hearing me here? So don't, don't deal with those things in isolation. Show them the whole picture and then develop the structure. You have to develop a structure now. That's so important, structure. So when you see, like let's go back to Psalm chapter 2. There are 12, 12 verses. So you have to read through and pick out the structure. The good thing 
because you've got a good Bible here. I can already see that it's structured correctly. This thing is actually meant to be structured into uh, four strophes with three verse units. So strophes are like stanzas or verses of a song. My PITs love the word stanza. Whenever my PITs are preaching sounds, they go, in the first stanza, hey, I feel the Holy Spirit. When they, start, when they start speaking in stanzas. So then the second stanza is verses 4 to 6. Then the third stanza is verses 7 to 9. And then the, the fourth stanza is verses 10 to 12. It's organized that way. So you need to now understand that structure. So if we're going to go to Psalm 23. That's a popular one. Wow, there's a lot of notes here. I'm going to receive a Bentley 2022. What happened? <laughs> Psalm 23, okay. So it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So it's six verses, and um, it should be structured between the two images the image of the shepherd, and then the image of the host. So verses one to four are about the good shepherd. And then verses 5 to 6, the final two verses are about the good host. So stanza 1 is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and up to, yea, though I walk through the valley. But sometimes you can make um, chapter 4, you can structure that as uh, a confession of faith. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And you know what that simply is? We were at the mall with my son, and now you know it's Lord shedding. Sometimes the whole mall gets dark. And then my son, I was like, Dad, Dad, where are you? And as soon as he felt my leg, all the fear left. You cannot be in fear when the Lord is with you. Your ministry can be in the dark, but by faith, if you just reach out and touch the hem of his garment, you should have no fear and anxiety about the future of your church. Because he is with you. The power is he is with me. He is with me. Then in verse 5 to 6, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So that becomes the final um, stanza. So you go to structure. Sometimes um, to structure, you might need, sometimes you go good Bibles, they structure them well for you. Sometimes you go bad Bibles, they structure them poorly for you. So make sure you've got a good Bible. You can even say, make sure you've got a good Bible. <laughs> right, I'm going to give you now another lesson called Building a Library. A practical lesson. How to build a library. How to build a library. Right. Your library is a photograph of your future as an expositor. Small library, small future. Your library is a photograph of how serious you are about expository preaching. Funny library, you're not serious. Serious library, you're serious. All great expositors have serious libraries. Frightening libraries. Um, there's this amazing Bible, was it Rick Warren? Someone went to his house 
He was showing his library. He even had books written by hand by Charles Spurgeon in his library. If you look at Tim Keller's library, you'll faint. All great expositors have got great libraries. There are no great expositors. There's only great libraries. Anyone doing it better than you usually has a better library than you. Are you hearing me here? Your biggest investment as an expositor is your library. Your library creates separation. Your library brings excellence. Your library must be your greatest excitement. Every week, be excited about your latest addition to your library. I am an old school. I promote traditional libraries, physical books. There's something about physical books. With digital, I'm still the Holy Ghost and, and I am not yet there. But there's something about having a physical book. On this holiday, I had to, because my, my books are so big, I had to print pages and pages from my commentaries in order to travel. And it, it was just crazy. It took me a long time to print, just print, and then put them in a, in a folder for my trip. Your library. Before I had the library, I was actually talking to the Lord. I was like, Lord, hey, how did I do it all these years? without a library. God said it's miracles, signs and wonders. <laughs> if you've never raised the dead, but you've preached with just a Bible alone, you are a wonder-working preacher. You are a way-maker. You are a promise-keeper. You have, you have done so well just preaching from your imagination. You've got a very creative imagination. You are very creative. So the first thing you need is you need a good Bible or Bibles, multiple Bibles. How many of you have one Bible? Lift up your hands. One Bible. Everybody. How many of you have one Bible? Lift up your hands. One Bible. You've got no Bibles. How many of you own one Bible? So let's start with one. Everybody's at least got one Bible. If you are preaching without a Bible, hallelujah. <laughs> Two Bibles, lift up your hands. Three Bibles, lift up your hands. Four Bibles. Five Bibles. I'm not saying you version, guys. Physical. Six. Seven. Eight. Nine. Ten. Uh, give God a praise for this apostle. <laughs> An expositor, you need minimum five. If you've only got one, you are not yet ready for the kingdom. So there's three types of Bibles. There's literal translations, dynamic equivalent, and paraphrase. Literal translations are word-for-word -word translations. Their aim is to translate original languages as closely to English as possible. So, for expository preaching, you need this type. You need literal translations. The best for expert, particularly when you're dealing with the epistles and you're also dealing with the poetry, you need word-for-word -word translations. And uh, these include the King James Version, uh, New American Standard Bible, 
um, and the English Standard uh, Version. So for expository preaching, I recommend the following. King James Version. New King James Version. New American Standard Bible, NASB. English Standard Version. And then, this one is a wild card, but it's important. New International Version. It's a bit of a mixture of um, word for word. Um, and it's also a bit of a dynamic equivalent. So it's a thought for thought and a word for word cross, NIV. Then you also need the Revised Standard Version, RSV. New Revised Standard Version, NRSV. Or the Amplified Bible. Those are word for word. So for expository preaching, those are the uh, Bibles. I highly recommend if you're going to do exposition, do not use paraphrases. Don't use the message for expository. Don't use Living Bible or Good News Bible or Passion Translation. You can't use that for expository because those are um, paraphrases. They use colloquial language. The goal is just to make it accessible and understandable to contemporary readers, not translating what the original languages are. Are you hearing me here? So then, once you've got multiple versions, the next thing you need are study Bibles. You need to invest in study Bibles. How many of you have got study Bibles? Lift up your hands. Fantastic. You need study Bibles. Where inside is written uh, study Bible. It's not a study Bible, right? It's a, more of a mobile. Okay, good giant print. Um, so you need study Bibles. <laughs> Good. Did you take this from a hotel? <laughs> the Lord bless you. Took it. So you need study Bibles. The best study Bible, the Bentley of study Bibles, is the ESV study Bible. Who has the ESV study Bible? Lift up your hand. The ESV study Bible. Hallelujah. Did you bring it? Can I see it? Okay. This is the Bentley. Please hold it carefully. <laughs> oh my Lord. I recommend everyone in this room, if you don't have this Bible, make sure you get it. It will take your preaching to another level. Um, it's a study Bible with good introductions. It's also got some good verse by verse. Um, Let's go to Psalm 2 and test if we were doing false doctrine today. <laughs> so it gives you like an introduction. When the people of God sing Psalm 2, they remind themselves of how God made David and his descendants to be kings in order to enable them to fulfill the very promise for which Abraham was called to bring blessing to all nations. Thus it can be called a royal psalm. Now can you see now, when you're not in false doctrine, the Bible means the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Any commentator is going to agree with what you're saying. Yeah. Our goal is not to come here and say something out of this world to sound special. Hey, I never read, I've never read the Bible before. Whoever put this Bible together years ago must still agree with what I'm saying. Are you hearing me here? Yeah. Thus it can be called a royal psalm. The pious Israelites realize that his hope of blessing is now irrevocably tied to the house of David. 
And so he prays that God will keep the king pure at a time when the Gentile kingdoms that are part of the Davidic empire seek to throw off Israelite rule. The psalm recalls the promises made to Davidic king at his coronation and notes that the Gentiles will find joy only as subjects of his, this king. And uh, with its prospect of a worldwide rule of the house of David, the psalm also looks to the future when the Davidic Messiah will indeed accomplish this. In fact, the scope of an accomplishment calls for a ruler who is more than mere man. Can you see? So right there, in this one little Bible, it's going to give you historical context. Yeah. I highly recommend that you get this Bible. It's one of the most, it's the Bentley of study Bibles. If you don't have this, you're missing out. Are you hearing me? It's very hard to find. If you go to Kum Books, they'll always tell you stories. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not there. Um, but if you can get your hands on an ESV study Bible, it's going to take you to another level. Are you hearing me here? Who's got that study Bible? Lift up your hands. ESV study Bible. Eh, these people should be called apostles. Stop calling them. These are not deacons. These are apostles. Anyone who brings an ESV must sit in the front row of church. Ushers, the ESV row. Those are the VIPs. <laughs> of church ESV that's the best and then the NKJV study Bible is also very good um, the King James study Bible is also very good another one which is excellent is the NLT study Bible they put together a brilliant it's got good notes it's got graphs it's got timelines it's got maps the NLT study Bible is brilliant who's got the NLT study Bible Praise God. I bought one for my wife eight years ago, and it was so good, she only used it for one day. <laughs> it was a Christmas present. She's like, in my life, no one has bought me a Christmas present, a Bible. You've married a pastor, my dear. We buy you Bibles. <laughs> our anniversary is, when is our anniversary? Tomorrow. It's tomorrow. I need to buy her an ESV. <laughs> Happy anniversary. She sent me this picture of this jewelry. She's getting a Bible. Are you hearing me here? You need this study Bible. The NLT is brilliant. The NASB Zodavon study Bible is brilliant. The Thompson chain is also brilliant. So make sure you get them. If the Dake, I don't know how many of you remember Dake, D-A-K-E. Yeah. Who's got a Dake? Oh, no, this, this lady. This lady is dangerous. She's got a Dake. <laughs> Do you know how hard it is to find a Dake? <laughs> I've got a Dake. Oh my Lord. Something else. You need a Dake in your life. If anyone is selling a Dake, please meet us afterwards. So after you get a good study Bible, you need background books. There are certain commentaries which are known as background commentaries. They only cover the background of books and, um, um, and they just give you a background look at what the book is about. So a very good one is the IVP Bible background of the New Testament by Craig Keener. Brilliant. 
There's also an Old Testament version, the IVP Bible background. It's by uh, John H. Walton. He has a very good uh, commentary on uh, Psalms. And then other ones which are good. Uh, Unlocking the Bible by Paulson is good. It's available in exclusive books. It goes for about 250 rand. So today don't buy chicken and just say, babe, there's bread at home. We're buying person and going home to eat bread and jam. Are you hearing me here? That's, it's got good backgrounds. Um, there's the Baker. The Baker um, Bible commentary. It's very good as well. Baker Illustrated Bible background commentary. It has very good backgrounds. And then another good one is the African Bible commentary. It's very good. It's in all the exclusive books. You can get it there. And then, um, and then for individual books, every book you need to also get commentaries. If you're dealing with a book, get a specific commentary on that book. Now, now you're going to another level. Now, there's three different types of commentaries. There's the entry-level, intermediate, and advanced. The entry-level ones are very devotional. They're very thin. They give you like a quick devotion, daily devotion on a book. And then you've got the intermediate ones, which give you some exegesis, some expository outlines. Then the advanced levels. There's a lot of Greek verbs, structure, um, critical debates. They can spend chapters debating who wrote the book. We dispute uh, Johannian authorship based on the literature review conducted by the Yale Theological Seminary in 1984. And they'll be debating for pages, did John write this book? Now, as a preacher, you don't really need that. You need the more intermediate, more than the advanced. For, as a scholar, you need the advanced. But because you are a practitioner, it's not going to help people spending 30 minutes fighting who wrote the book. Yeah. Discussing. People don't care about that right now. They want to find the gospel. Because yeah. some of these professors sometimes want to argue for the sake of arguing. Yeah. And they can argue for hours and hours about who wrote the book. Then after you're done with that, they start arguing what year it was written. Yeah. But when we look at chapter 2, it seems as if John, he calls... Uh, the, the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias. And it was only called the Sea of Tiberias after AD 72, after uh, the prefect of Rome, Tiberias, renamed Galilee after himself. So there's no way he wrote it before. So they'll be arguing for chapters when the book was written. You just have to research, have a general idea, and make a decision. Are you hearing me here? So you've got to get good commentary. So the best commentary for the Old Testament is called the Nicot, the New International Commentary on the Old Testament. And then there's the NICNT for the New Testament. And then another good one is the NIV Application Commentary. It's a good series. Another good series is the series by Kent and Hughes. That's when you're building your library. And then after you get your commentaries, you need uh, systematic theologies. You need books on systematic theology to help you understand the doctrines of the Bible.
The first one I'll recommend is Tim Frame, Systematic Theology by Tim Frame. The next one I'll recommend is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. I recommend uh, Berkhoff. He's got a very good systematic theology, Berkhoff. I recommend uh, Ravnik. He's got a very good uh, systematic theology. I also recommend Charles Hodge. Got a very good systematic theology. And then I also recommend uh, MacArthur and Mayhew. They got a very good systematic theology. Now that one, you need a systematic theology because it now helps you um, deal with the theological subjects that you're, you're dealing with. Because there's, in all scripture, there's something theological at stake. And if you don't understand the theologies, you're going to have serious trouble. Just simple things like what happens when we die? What? What's the theological position on personal eschatology? Instead of cosmic eschatology in terms of post-millennium, amillennium, that's on a cosmic level, but on a personal level, what happens when someone dies? Does the soul sleep? Do they go to heaven? Will there be a bodily resurrection? Or will we just be ghosts in heaven? And systematic theologies help you understand that. What happens at the point of salvation? Is it our faith that saves us? Or is faith a gift from God? What comes first, calling or faith? Is faith a work or is faith a gift? What happens? with justification, what happens with sanctification, what is adoption, what is atonement, what is glorification, what is pneumatology, what is the trinity, the God in three person, how does that work, what is Christology, what is the person of Christ, what is the work of Christ, what does it mean, did his sinless life contribute to the atonement, if you just came and died instantly on the cross, how would have that impacted the world? If he wasn't born of woman but was born of the dust, how would that impact the world? You have to look at angelology. Can we command the angels to go around? Can I say, my angels from, uh, from Randberg are with me here. They've come to give you money. Can we say all those things? Are you hearing me here? A systematic theology will help you manage all those issues. Are you hearing me here? It will help you see the Bible and understand the rules of engagement so that you don't drift into false doctrine. Are you hearing me here? Give the Lord a praise one more time. Any questions? I've got a few questions. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, it comes from, the, from earlier. Okay, so not all of us are into teaching or preaching. Some of us are still new to it. And you made a comment earlier with regards to uh, trying to avoid that whole rapid fire in, in terms of scripture, right? So I've come from a place of that where a friend of mine used to do that. When he preached, he would give me, because as you can see, I had a projector at a previous church. He would give me something like sometimes 14 to 20 scriptures to reference in one sermon. <laughs> so when we're doing the contextual and the observations and all of that, what is your pointers for us 
they're still journeying into that venture of teaching or preaching, to try and refine our messages and polish it and you know, come to an understanding of what is necessary or what isn't. Um, okay, first of all, there's nothing wrong with having a couple of scriptures as long as they're connected to the main idea and the main thing that you're dealing with. Um, but the main thing is they have to be connected to the big idea that you're preaching and being able to connect them. There have to be bridges which connect to the main thing. So it's a skill and it takes also spiritual sensitivity to figure out which part is excess and which part is, okay, which part is the icing and which part is the cake? Which part is the sauce and which part is the Nando's chicken? So it takes uh, prayerful discernment to be able to discern Am I throwing too many scriptures out or am I studying too much? The best thing is always just to remain in the book and in the text you are dealing with and just go verse by verse as much as possible. Okay, no, thank you for that. And then also another thing that I would want to ask is your advice or that mindset change that we need to do, right? Because you mentioned something about that crowd-pleasing approach. And a lot of people, a lot of us, I would say, get kind of shell-shocked when we don't get that amen or the clapping or whatever, then we feel, we, we, we kind of go back into our shell, we, we feel intimidated. So any advice on how to overcome something like that? As human beings, we all want to be accepted, every one of us, you know, we want to be accepted, we want to be adored. I know like when my kids hug me and say, Dad, you're the best, it feels so good, it feels so good. and. Even as preachers, we want to be accepted and adored. So even when we're preparing a message, in the Bible for Online, we're also hearing the response of people. There's a point where you write, ah, here, ah, they're going to clap. Here, <laughs> they're going to come with offerings in the front. This part, I can see the offerings here. Um, but you must never make that your intention. Your intention is always, um, I want them to encounter the Lord here, and I want them to encounter Jesus here. I want them to have an encounter with the Lord in His Word. They must meet you, Lord, today. And whether I get an amen or not, you can feel it in the room when Jesus is working on people. And that must be your greatest thing. When you can feel it in your spirit that, hey, God is doing something here. God did something here, Lord. He did something in me. He did something in someone. That spirit, the spiritual sensitivity to what the Holy Spirit is doing is what must be your biggest, uh, your biggest joy. You must be able to feel it that, Lord, that person who's struggling with sin today, Father, they found a way out today. That person who's struggling with hurt and they're struggling with trying to understand why did this bad thing happen to me? Why did this painful thing, why did I lose my loved one? Why did I lose my job? This word, I believe, it touched, it did something in them. That's where the real fulfillment comes. And with expository preaching every week, you know, I was telling my wife the other day, I said, I feel for the first time I'm really in the will of God now. I feel like this is really what God wants to say to people. This is not a gimmick. It's not, I'm not trying to cheat anyone out of anything. I'm not trying to manipulate anybody. Thus says the Lord. This is what God is saying to people. And I feel I've never felt more in the presence and in the will of God 
like I do right now. And that's the best feeling when you preach. To know that there were no lies, there was no exaggeration. This is the truth of the word of God. It's the best feeling. Last question, sorry. Okay, so, <laughs> so in your library, right, there's quite a lot of books that you've, you know, kind of recommended. So for us that are starting out and don't have that many books, what would be your minimum suggestion? My minimum suggestion would be, if you're only starting out, just get overall background commentaries, like a, a person, an African Bible commentary, a Baker Illustrated. Um, those are very good, just at least. But the first point would be to get an ESV study Bible. And then you can start to build from there. Um, and, but once you start, tell your wife that things are changed. There's no Uber Eats. That Uber Eats build was a nice book I saw. Are you hearing me? So you just start buying books and buying books. And before you know it, your library is crazy. Are you hearing me here? Mark the other day walked in my library and I was like, hey, things are changing in here, hey? <laughs> and there's some other books in my car. Um, and once you go to library, your biggest trouble now becomes when you're traveling, what books do I carry? What stays? When you're going to bed, what books is coming to the bed? Which one is staying? And you start going with like six or seven. That's when you know you're finished. <laughs> Any other question? Oh, um, sorry, my, my question is around the lines of um, analysis, paralysis. Like when do, you, when do you sort of know that you, um, especially when you, because a lot of the stuff that you've covered, it's, it, it's a marathon, stuff that will take you a lifetime to dissect. Um, to grow and it's more or less like a, a lifetime walk with God. So when you study especially either to preach or even to grow as a person, you made a statement earlier where you said not everything you study will make it to the pulpit, you know. And I'm just wondering because sometimes even when you prepare to, to speak or to share something, it's easy to go down a hole somewhere and then maybe you end up finding out that there's nothing there, <laughs> you know. So how do, you, how do you sort of navigate that, especially when you're looking to grow out of studying something and also when you have to prepare a sermon? When do you know you've um, sort of like exhausted a point and you can move on to, to the next, um, almost like to sort of cover the whole structure and not have a case where the intro is strong, the body is all right, but then the landing is weak? <laughs> You know, that, that's more or less what I'm wondering. I'm not sure if I'm making sense. No, you're making so much sense. Um, every week, it's a battle. The deeper you get in this, there is, okay, I found the text, now I'm studying it. Now, moving, the toughest thing is moving from studying to actually to start writing. It, it gets so juicy in here. Because now you just start enjoying all these things. Oh, there's so much beauty you begin to see right here that transition from the studying to the actual writing, it, it's, it's a, it takes time. Now, you've got to be ruthless. There's a point now where you say, enough, I'm now writing. The sooner you get to writing, the sooner you shift from studying to writing, get to the writing place quickly. 
That's how you deal with it. This, but the problem is, as you're writing, the Holy Ghost starts to hit you. I write and walk, because I write and then I start to pace and I start to feel these things happening in my spirit. If you come in my study when I'm writing, it's a mess. I can't write with my wife next to me. Because she'll why are you walking? I'm like, I'm preaching it before I write. And sometimes as I'm preaching it, I forget it. And when I come to write, I'm like, that sounded good. What was that? You know? So, as soon as possible, get to writing. And don't write an intro, don't write an outro, deal with the verses immediately. And then once that is done, you start to now write the intro and the outro last. The sooner you get into the text, if I'm dealing with some too, why do the hidden rage? I start there. Why are they? You start dealing with that first stanza quickly. And then you're good to go. But the problem, like you're saying, is side quests. There's so many beautiful side quests which come. And they are very tempting. You have to resist the temptation of side quests in the study process. You can get so busy and then time has gone. And now you're writing poor stuff if you had stayed focused. So my advice is by Thursday, okay, by Wednesday you should be writing. By Thursday you should be done writing. By Friday you should be editing. By, sun, by Saturday, you're not, you can't be writing on Saturday. Yeah. Wednesday to Friday, you write. Saturday, you're just reciting only. Are you hearing me here? Any other question? The last question. And then we're going to pray. Okay. Sorry. What commentaries or books do you use to study the language, the breaking down of words, the meaning in the ancient texts, the new, you get what I'm saying, understanding the actual language? Um, for language, um, I usually use an old school Strong's Concordance. Um, and then also Vines and uh, Vines Expository um, Dictionary and also a good Muncie is also quite good. It's got a few words. But if you just get like dictionaries, um, but ideally long term you want to learn Greek and Hebrew directly so that you can read the Bible in Greek and read the Bible in Hebrew. That's when you're now elite <laughs> levels. Let's stand and pray. Father God, we thank you this afternoon. For every man, every ministry, every church, I pray, Father, that you stir up the gift, the gift of expository preaching, the gift of Bible interpretation. We want to know you more. We want to encounter you in your word. We pray for the anointing that even as we preach, Father, the Holy Spirit will touch hearts and change minds and change families. We pray, Father, that make us gospel-centered. Make us love to find Jesus, to find the gospel. We're sorry, Lord, for everything that we've made this Bible. We want to make it all about you again. We thank you, Father, for all the blessings. We thank you, Father, for all the breakthroughs. We thank you, Father, for all the demons that you've defeated. But we want to focus on you again and make this Bible all about you, of the gospel, Jesus. Help us, Father, to be incredible expositors who are humble. We never want to force the Bible to say 
what we wanted to say. May we submit to what the Bible is saying. We come against preconceived ideas. May we approach every text independently and allow you to direct us. Help us, Father, with the money and the resources to build libraries, to build strong libraries, Father. Help us, Father. Give us the time. Help us, Father, with the resources so we can dedicate our whole lives to prayer and the word. Help us, Father, to release the gospel of Jesus Christ in South Africa. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.